So I begin today, we come to the most unsettling and frightening paragraph in the Bible. To be upfront with you, Jesus is trying to scare you out of hell and into heaven. They sought for it like they would seek for the golden ticket. They coveted it like a front row seat at a Ben Rector concert. By the hundreds, they made their way outside their comfort zone to seek that man with the camel skin dress. Seek him out in the barren, rugged desert. They wanted to find out, how can I have access to the kingdom of heaven? And how can I be sure that my sins are forgiven and that all is well? When he could have ended his manifesto with a high note, with words full of positivity and attaboy accolades, Jesus chose instead to go to the dark side. Rather than applaud the spectacular efforts of supposed followers, he labels these religious activists as workers of lawlessness. Instead of closing with an uplifting verbiage such as, and it did not fall, he chose instead to wrap it all up with this one phrase, and great was the fall of it. This week in a post-funeral conversation, I learned that some who heard our message from last Sunday misinterpreted it as if we were preaching a works merit salvation gospel. If that was your takeaway, please know that it is exactly the opposite of what we were trying to communicate. We are not saying that those who work will be saved, but rather we are saying that those who are saved will work. One author put it this way, the gospel that saves us from work saves us to work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 must also include verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now again today, we ask that you listen very carefully. We are about to unpack the most frightening paragraph in all of the Bible. Jesus is going to try to scare you out of hell and into his heaven. So should we soften his message or lessen his passion in our warning? We would be false leaders, hirelings, unloving pastors. You see, if our typical morning walk with the dogs, we saw your house had started to burn and we knew you were asleep inside with your family, Linda and I would do all that we could to awaken you and rescue you and your family from certain death. So as faithful under-shepherds, we must do the same in light of the eternality of eternity. If Jesus spoke of hell twice as often as he did of heaven, which he did, then we would be worthless pastors, derelict in our duty, if we did not speak the words of Jesus with bold conviction, and rather just watered them down, sprinkling some powdered sugar on them to make them more digestible for you to consume. For these words of Jesus are eternal life and death issues. Yes, Jesus is seeking to scare you out of hell and into his heaven. Follow along in Matthew. We start in chapter 5 all the way back to the beginning from February. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now chapter 7, we hit the exit ramp on Jesus' message, and he exited with these emphases. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, 
Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We've been told, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and you're like, how in the world am I ever supposed to conform to the standards and requirements of the Old Testament? And the answer is very simply this, whatever you wish others would do to you, do that to them and you will have fulfilled it all. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do these mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then, notice the word then, circle it in your Bible or highlight it on your screen. This is the wrap-up with the whole message now in the rearview mirror. His exit ramp is this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And the last words of his sermon are, great was the fall of it. Obviously, he took a homiletics class unlike the one I had in Bible college days. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, this is a paraphrase most likely, is simply this. He says, there are three things that will surprise me when I get to heaven. The first thing that will surprise me is the people that are there that I never thought would be there. The second thing that will surprise me is the people that are not there that I thought ought to be there. But the third thing and most surprising of all is that I myself am there. David Platt in his book, and we still have copies, if you didn't get your copy of Follow Me, and I hope that you're reading it, not just collecting dust with it. He says, and there are scores of people around the world culturally think they are Christian when biblically they are not. So I'll say it later in the message, I want to say it here. It is unsettling to have somebody raise a question about your comfortable relationship to eternity. But only a false teacher would not ask you to examine yourself to see if for certain you are of the faith. So Jesus in his exit ramp, his wrap-up, begins with, live your lives selfishly, chapter 7, verse 12. Literally, what it means is, is that if you were standing in their situation, and they were standing where you stand, how would you want them to respond to you? You can fulfill all of the Old Testament if you simply treat others the way you would want to be treated if you stood 
in their situation. The second thing that he says is that you need to choose wisely. Chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Jesus said, don't make any mistake about it. There are only two gates. There are not three. One is narrow and one is wide. The narrow one leads you into a hard path. But the end of that, there are only two destinations. There is destruction and there is life. Now, the thing we need to remind ourselves, I think that the gospel that keeps getting diluted is that some preach a gospel that says, if you choose the narrow gate, once you're through it, you can step over and start walking on the wide path. But you need to understand that once you enter the gate, you have determined your destination. And the narrow gate is a hard path, but the end of it is the life we're longing for and looking for. But we've got these people saying, if you just pray the prayer beyond that, it doesn't matter. And just go right on living on the wide path and don't worry about the end. And eternity is eternal. And it's important that we pause and ask ourselves, is there something about my life that would indicate that I am on the narrow way? Am I willing to stay there even though it gets hard? The third thing he says is that you need to follow discerningly. He is talking here about spiritual leaders and influencers. And he said that over time, you will recognize them by their fruits, not perhaps right up front. And he talks about them being wolves clothed in sheep's garments for this simple reason, that a true heretic, you recognize him by what he says right up front. But a false teacher is, is hard to determine for a season of time. And over time, you realize there are certain messages they are unwilling to deliver. There are certain things, biblical facts, that they leave out of their ministry, and ultimately what they are becomes evident by all who see. And we have seen a raft of those in the last two years in evangelical world. People that had notable names and great large platforms and thousands of watchers and listeners over time, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't keep the sham up anymore. So he says, be discerning people. And if we ever needed discernment, it's now. Because what's happened over the last year is that virtually every church in America has gone live stream. So you can stay home and you can podcast and live stream and listen to so many communicators and teachers. Listen closely. Watch their lives. What are they? Linda and I, early this morning, were just talking about some of those people that, that over time there were just little things about the way they handled the Scripture that made you kind of wonder a question, but it seemed like they were saying all the right things, use the name of Jesus at the right place, and they would quote Bible verses and all. And then over time you begin to see that the camouflage falls away, and we recognize them for what they were. So we've already preached that. That was last week. But what he does in the transition on the exit ramp is he goes from false teachers and false professors of faith, from unsaved or unsound teachers to unsound hearers, from teacher deception to self-deception. That's the movement of his message. And so he tells us in verses 21 to 23 that we are to serve righteously, properly. Again, he is speaking to spiritual influencers, those who have a following, those whose voices carry credibility to those who are listening. Not every one of those says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father 
The distinction is in obedience. Now, to say, Lord, Lord, is a term of respect and actually a term of submission, perhaps. The Caesars of Rome required that the citizens of Rome address them as Lord, which means treat us as deity. It was, it was Caesar worship. So Jesus said, there is coming a day when many will stand before me and they will verbalize, they will be saying the right things, but they will not have supported it by what they are doing. There are many spiritual influencers who are willing to declare him to be Lord, but refuse to submit to his lordship. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Take a line, draw it up to verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. There will be many who will say, I am bringing you a message from God. I am speaking on God's behalf, and I'm doing it in your name. Lord, I, I had this ministry, and I quoted you continually. I, I made certain that we opened and closed with your name, and then the casting out of demons. It, I, was, I was effective in demanding that the powers of darkness release the captives of this world and other mighty works. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we look at that and we say, is that, is that even possible? Is it possible that someone could actually have had a ministry quoting Jesus, using the Bible, and the reality is they did not know him. And all you have to do is remember back to the days of Moses when they were doing the great plagues and miracles in Egypt, and, and God would work a jaw-dropping miracle through Aaron and Moses, and then the magicians of Egypt would come along and replicate it. Or don't forget the imposter Judas. Judas was part of the 70 that was sent out with authority and power to heal and to cast out demons and came back and reported. He was narrowed down to one of the 12. He was the unsuspected uh, outlier in the disciples, and yet he did the same ministries they did. So much so that he, he was so deceptive that on that night when Jesus clearly indicated he was the one that was going to kiss him off, that he went out and the other disciples thought, well, it can't be him. He's just going to give some gifts to the poor people. Jesus is indicating here that, one, you cannot trust the crowds. If you, if you say, well, the, the popular road is the road I'll walk up on, don't trust the crowds. They don't know what they're talking about. There are few who find the narrow road. The second thing, he says, you cannot trust all teachers. Be discerning. Examine them. What are they saying? What are they not saying? How does what they say align with what God has said? Is there a consistency or inconsistency? And then the others we said last week is that you can judge a teacher by the people who follow them. What do their groupies look like? It says in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, that it's sufficient. When a pupil is fully taught, he becomes like his teacher. So you look at those who have been influenced over a long period of time by their message and what kind of people are they. You can't trust all teachers, and you can't even trust your own heart. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but they are not washed of their filth. Or Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. So you tell yourself that I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I bowed at the altar. I, obviously, the fact that my life doesn't show the evidence of my relationship to Jesus doesn't change the fact that I prayed the prayer. A couple of things. 
In his exit ramp, when Jesus is talking about looking at the fruit, he is talking about examining the fruit of the teachers, those who profess to speak on his behalf. This is not a message about examining your brothers and sisters for, is there enough evidence in their life for me to be convinced that they're saved? That's between them and the Lord. All of us have a responsibility to examine our own lives to see, is there fruit in my life of genuinely walking with Jesus? Now keep this in mind. He never asks you to produce fruit of a transformed life. He simply asks you to bear the fruit that the Spirit produces. You can't help yourself. Those who are saved by faith, He moves in and He starts to work in them, and their lives are changed. It's not what they do, it's what they are. And, and they don't manufacture the fruit, they simply bear it. Can you look at it and say, is the Spirit of God bearing fruit in me? That's a hard question. Can you trust your own heart? Examine yourself. If it makes you uncomfortable, that's of the Spirit of God. Because eternity is forever. And the decision that you have made about Christ will be evident in the kind of person He makes you to become. So Jesus would say, the question is not, do you know Jesus? But the question is, does Jesus know you? When you stand before him, you say, I, I know you, and he'll look at you and say, I never knew you. Depart from me into outer darkness. So then the last and the frightening one is that we must listen obediently. If those who served unrighteously, they were saying one thing and doing another, those who build on sand or those who are hearing what he says, but they're not doing what he has told them. This is his final appeal. And, and notice that he says, and everyone then, everyone then, the then says that in this whole message that he has proclaimed on the Sermon on the Hill, that he's wrapping it up and this brings it all together. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We're back to the, to the uh, couplets again, the two. And so we had two gates, two paths, two destinations, two trees, two fruits. Now we're back to we have two builders, two foundations, and two results. Now I want you to notice that as Jesus is speaking, He is not so addressing the foundations as He is the builder. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So we've got the children's little ditty that we sing in Sunday school, and we usually go out of there thinking, who's the rock? The rock is Jesus. Build your life on Jesus. The point is the builder. Where are you? How are you building? Verse 26, he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When Luke accounts this, he, he, he basically, the difference between two houses is the difference between obedience and disobedience. The, the thing about the man that builds on the rock is that his house went up a whole lot slower than the other man. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll tell you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. 
He, this is the guy that just gets out the pick. Now, in our day and age, it's just a backhoe and you go till you can't go any further and you say, well, that'd be a good place to build. In this case, they would take a shovel and a pick and they would just work a work on the soil. And you would think, well, it's pretty hard. If you need a pick to break it up, it's probably good clay and you could build on it. But this man is relentless. He is not going to start building upward until he has dug deep enough to know that there was something that it would stand upon. Right next door is a guy bought the other lot, and he just comes in and packs the ground, and he starts to build. Lays down the bottom plate, measures out where the studs go, starts standing it up. This other guy is still looking, I've got to go deeper, I've got to get more, something more solid than that. What a fool he appears to be, like Noah building an ark when there's no lake and there's no rain. The other guy's house has siding on it, and the windows are hung, and he's roofing it. And this guy is just barely laying the block on the foundation. Which one is the wisest of the two? You see, the real test of the wisdom of the builder is not seen until a trial comes. Luke says, when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house, and it could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When a stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. There's Old Testament illustrations. Jesus is picking that up. It's the story of the Psalm 1, where it blesses a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. He's going to be like a tree well-rooted by the rivers. Jeremiah chapter 17, one of my favorite Old Testament chapters, says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree that is firmly rooted by streams of water and he will not lose his leaf in its season. But cursed is the man who makes flesh his strength, who trusts in mankind. He'll be like a shrub in the desert and he will not see when the trials come. I, I, never, I was introduced to Jeremiah 17, my sophomore year in Bible college. We were working through it in one of my classes. About that time, we, had, we were between automobiles. I had two small children, had borrowed my brother-in-law's, I think it was a 63 Volkswagen Bug. It was red, and uh, back in those days, you gotta remember all the Jesus buses and everything, and we had never heard of seat belts. So, you know, my father-in-law owned a floor covering business, and so we went in, we ripped all the interior out, and we carpeted the whole thing with really nice shag carpet, took out the seat, put a bench in. So the two little kids are just rattling around in the back of the Volkswagen, and we had it for about a month, and finally found a replacement vehicle, and we're on our way back to Nebraska to exchange that from Denver, and we got just outside of Sterling, Colorado, and you know what? There's nothing out there. I mean, it's just like God worked really hard on the mountains, and then he said, whoa, i got to make up for lost time, and blitzed right past. And so we're driving along. I'm, I'm driving our replacement car, and Linda's up front with the little red bug and the two kids in it, you know, and off to the side, on the south side of the interstate, I see this, this tumbleweed. It is massive. And I, I can see the timing. And it's, it's coming at about the same place where Linda is. And suddenly it went over that big deer fence. And it stuck to the bumper of our red Volkswagen. Linda couldn't see anything. And all I can see from about a quarter mile back is that the, the bug is up on two wheels. And she is careening into the ditch, dust flying everywhere. And when she finally was able to get it stopped and all, and it's back on four tires, you know, my heart started to work again. And I went up to take the tumbleweed, and I tried to drag it off of the bumper, and that's when I saw it. Here is this massive plant that had a root ball about that big. 
You see, as a gardener, I'm far more impressive with the weeds that I can grow than the plants because weeds grow where everybody can see. They're the visible part. The difference between a weed and a tree is that a weed puts all its energy into what can be seen. A tree does its greatest work below the surface where it cannot be seen. It roots itself deep so that in the day of the drought, it is connected to a life source. The reason this is such a scary passage is because as a youth pastor, I used to look at the youth group and I would think, maybe half of these kids have been Christian culturated. They, 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 they carry their Bibles and they come to the youth group and they do all that, but do they really genuinely know Jesus? And the saddest thing is, is that many of them, and the most encouraging ones were the ones that grew the quickest. They were the most responsive. They were the ones that showed all the flash and the flare. But over time, when they got out in the real world and the real pressures of life hit them, they had no root. They had no anchor. And they just washed out, renounced their faith, and walked away. You see, it takes time to build to last. You have to go deep. You have to do the hard work. You have to wait. You can't be all enamored by quick results and what everybody else says. But quite honestly, once the two houses were done, as you rode your bicycle down the street past the two, they looked the same. One just took longer than the other one. The fool, he'd spent all his time doing all the work where nobody could see it. What an idiot. Romans chapter 2, verse 13 says, It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it's the doers of the law that will be justified. Or James chapter 1, verse 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The house that our kids arranged for us to move into is a great place, but it's got one major negative issue, and that is every bathroom has large mirrors. And at our age, that is not attractive. No one over age 40 was ever naked and not ashamed. But I figured out that soon you can just go in, turn the lights off, go out in the hallway, and pretty soon you can convince yourself that you looked better than you do. That's what James is saying. If we just read the Word and we don't do what it says, very quickly we forgot what kind of people we are. You see, the difference between the builders is one obeys and one disobeys. Before the storms test them, both builders will look alike. One author put it this way, when the skies are clear and the breeze is balmy, all houses look alike. But when flash floods assail and rains descend and winds increase, that is when the wisdom of the builder is clearly seen. Or John Calvin put it this way, true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit until it comes to the trial. The hidden truth is only revealed in the storms. Notice in this that there is a wise builder who took the time to find the rock, and there is the fool who did it in a quick one. Both of them experienced the storm. The rains represent the troubles that come from heaven. 
It's the afflictions of Job. That God allowed Satan to test him. Sometimes God will allow trials to come into your life for the purpose of strengthening your faith and validating your convictions. The floods are the trials that come from living in a fallen world. Everybody has to deal with those. Everybody has to deal with COVID mask and isolation, all those other things. Everybody has to live with the reality of life is short and death is forever. The winds are the mysterious testings. Those are the things that we cannot explain, but they cause us anxiety and fear and depression and doubt and wondering. In all of those, you need to understand that the storms will come to all. They come to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. In both of them it said, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against the house. The difference is that those who are still standing when the storms have passed are the ones that are truly saved. Now to be really clear, you're not saved because you persevere. You persevere because you are saved. It's in the perseverance through the storms that your faith is genuinely confirmed. It's through the survival, the perseverance through the storms that we begin to understand His keeping, holding power. It's through the storms that a message of hope is seen by a hopeless world around us. That's why Peter, when he wrote, he said, be ready at all times to give an answer for the hope that is in you. That statement is in the context, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. It is those who have been tested and stand to become the greatest witnesses for the holding power of the gospel of Christ. The secret of saving faith is found in obedience. Everyone then, wrapping it up, who hears these words of mine and does them, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, the question is, does your heart desire to do what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount? Are you allowing your frustration over being less than his standard for kingdom citizenship drive you to Jesus or away from him? D.A. Carson put it this way, it is true that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is not a work merit salvation, but when the Spirit of God moves into the life he changes what we are. And when He changes what we are, we suddenly realize we are doing His will. It's not a question of did they hear. It becomes a question of what did they do with what they have heard. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. John chapter 14, verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. The last thing Jesus said to the disciples before he went back to the Father has to do with obedience in Matthew 28. 
Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice the next thing. And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. A false teacher will tell you that it's sufficient to simply pray the prayer. And by praying the prayer, you have entered through the narrow gate. And now if you choose to step over and travel on the wide and comfortable path, that's okay. Because you entered the gate. It's a heretic. You're allowing people to go comfortably to an eternity without Christ. John Stott said, this is not to teach that the way of salvation is by good works of obedience. For the whole New Testament offers salvation only by the sheer grace of God through faith. But his point is this, Those who truly hear the gospel and profess faith will always obey him, expressing their faith in their works. Will they stumble and fall? Yes. But they're not comfortable living in their fallenness. They they repent and they come back to walking with him. Some takeaways. This is the problem last week is apparently our message created doubt or concern and the best push back on some conviction that the Spirit was bringing was simply to accuse us of preaching a work salvation rather than to ask yourself, what is it that I'm not willing to give up that I'm convicted about? Principle number one is that Jesus does not want you to live with a sense of perpetual insecurity. He is not preaching this. He's not wrapping it up this way so that you doubt all the time whether you're saved or not. John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father, we are one. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, those are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we call Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God, and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, he wrote the whole letter of 1 John to assure us, here are the tests of whether your salvation profession is authentic or not. Chapter, one verse, or chapter 2, verse 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 4, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And he wraps it up in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is not Jesus' plan to make you constantly doubt, question, insecure about the eternality of your relationship to Him. 
But principle number two is Jesus does not desire that we live with a false and fatal sense of security. For that reason, he does not apologize for stirring up your soul to ask the most important question of your life. Am I truly a believer? If someone is going through the journey of asking that question, don't so quickly relieve the pressure of that because it is a life and death decision. Perhaps they too have simply been Christian culturated and they have not really bowed the knee of their heart. I'm exhibit A of that. And third, Jesus does not rescue us to leave us living selfishly. He's put the bar high. Chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Make it even worse. Chapter 5, verse 48. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Mission impossible. If his goal for us was to our perfection, our sanctification to the completion, the moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior, boom, he would have snatched you up into heaven. Because when you get there, you're going to be like him because you'll see him as he is. But he left us here because we are to be lights in the darkness and we're to be salt amidst the decay around us. Our mission is to bring the good news to lost and dying people. We know that there is an inevitable fire of destruction. Jesus spoke twice as often of hell as he did of heaven. On the other side, there is a forever heaven and there is forever hell. And bottom line, the storms and trials of this life are nothing compared to the ultimate storm that will test the foundation. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 8, because you have uttered falsehood, he's talking to the prophets, and lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets simply smear it with whitewash. Rather than checking to see, did they dig down deep? Did they build it on a solid rock? They just simply dress it up, applaud their selfless work. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it will fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind will break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. There is coming a final fatal violent storm. There really is a forever heaven and it is a forever hell. Jesus concludes his greatest sermon by trying to frighten us out of hell and into heaven. Unless we face the reality of the unleashed wrath of God, there will be limited motivation to run to the rock for shelter. So we conclude. If our hearing of the Sermon on the Mount has disquieted your soul, 
and made you seriously wonder if you have been saved, we must not apologize, but thank the Lord for awakening your soul to answer this more critical question of your eternal needs. Jesus' message was crafted to close the loop. Chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's the poor in spirit who know that they need a Savior. It's the poor in spirit who will discover that Jesus is that one and only Savior. Let not his sermon press you to despair or to a more diligent self-repair. Let it press you fully to Jesus. He who finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked presses us not to condemn us, but to convert us. J.I. Packer, I love the way he said, answers the question, what is a Christian? He said, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. So the real question is not, do you know Jesus? But instead, does Jesus know you? He went to the dark side when he closed his message with this one phrase. And great was the fall of it. My homiletics instructor would have instructed us to end on a far more positive note. We're four minutes over. Receive this benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.